I'm gonna hit record, which I already did. <laughs> trying to, this is gonna be fun. To, I know. Trying to capture some like reality kind of thing here. And um, I'm in New York City, so it's it's noisy, and um, mm-hmm. it's either close the window and turn on the AC, which then creates this hum noise, mm-hmm. uh, or leave it. Yeah, leave it. And uh, so often what I'll do is like when I'm not talking, I'll often put myself on mute and you'll, you may see that. So yeah, cause it's just noisy. But anyway, so I used to do the spiel uh, in the beginning, but I realized I hate doing it cause it just sounds, I don't know. It sounds stupid the way I but do JJ, it. But JJ, you, you're in entertainment. You're a musician. You're supposed to do spiel. <laughs> right? I, yeah, I so am practice. <laughs> I am like the worst ever. Um, no, you're just very harsh critic of yourself. That's all. It's it's maybe, but it's also um, it's not something I like doing. <laughs> I understand that. I I get that. Yeah, yeah. I I I say uh, that I'm a very reluctant performer um you know it's something especially when it comes to music it's something that I I feel I'm compelled to do for some reason I don't know why there's something inside me that says do it (laughs) but I don't like getting in front of people yeah I understand that I mean I love I love doing art and actually I love music too but I just do it you know in solitude (laughs) (laughs) and then and then, you know, when you have to actually promote your art, it's like, nah, <laughs> it's like, no, I'm really awful at it. Uh, so, I, yeah. so, so when it was time to promote the book, um, I got incredibly sick and then everything hit the fan. And, you know, for the two months that I was really supposed to be pushing it, I didn't do it. And when I was done, it's like, eh, you know, do I have to put myself out there? really want to so you know I had I had already geared myself up the opportunity passed and as I you know I did get the word out but not as well as I could have exactly for the same reason that you don't like to do the intros it's like "Eh, I just stink at this (laughs) but um so the last episode I actually didn't do the intro and me and my guests we just started talking and then when I viewed it afterwards I realized I actually didn't introduce a person either so let me do that at least <laughs> so Don- <Yeah>. Donna <laughs> Kemper Donna Kemper artist um, author and uh, reluctant uh, exhibitionist <laughs> Reluctant podcaster. Yes, that's true. Um, and uh, welcome to Beer Cake. Uh, and um, today, um, well, we're going to be talking about your book a lot, but but also just your life, your journey uh, through that time period in your life um, that you capture in your book. And it's called Forgive. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep. Forgive and Forgotten. forgotten forgive which is forgotten. not which is not grammatically correct and I know that but you also know from following me on Facebook that I like wordplay 
Yes. And so this was a play on words that I would choose to forget and I would always be forgotten. So because of mom's Alzheimer's, so you forgive, that's forgotten, and you have to forgive all over again, and that's forgotten, and you just, it's, it just keeps going. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that that is true, because the person with whom you're dealing with this uh, matter of forgiveness is somebody who's going through Alzheimer's, which means that uh, it's kind of like that movie 50 Dates or 50 First <sighs> Dates or something like that, where Drew Barrymore and I think it's, mm-hmm. is it uh, Adam Sandler? I forget. Um, I don't remember. Yeah, I, she, yeah, I remember the movie, but I don't remember who it is. Yeah. Um, so she'd wake up every day and not remember him. <laughs> not remember that she's actually married to this guy. And mm-hmm. she would be like, who's a stranger in my bed? So he would have to like do this. I actually didn't see the movie. Um, I only know about it from the trailers. And um, but sometimes um, that tells you just enough. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> you can, you can I find as I get older, I just watch the trailers. You know, it's okay, I got it. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, you know, because I think that's life. You know, when you get to a certain age, right, you've lived enough to know that there's certain recurring themes. There are. And you also think, do I really want to invest two hours of my life in this? Uh, Is it going to be worth it? And because time gets shorter and it's like, eh, maybe. Yeah, certainly if I'm with a friend and they want to go. Yeah. But if it's on my own, yeah, that's true. Cer- certain movies like um, it's it's much better when you're viewing it as a group with other people. Yes, um, there is this one movie that has become my uh, recent favorite and I watched it at least a dozen times. And I don't really do that with movies uh, that much. Like maybe I'll watch it twice or three times and that's about it. But uh, but it's called Little Miss Sunshine. Um, I haven't seen I, the old one. Because uh, there was one like done in the 80s or 90s. Is that the one? No, this is definitely after 2000, maybe okay. 2010-ish or, or I don't know, or maybe even a little before that. Um, I guess then this is a remake. I don't know. Um, yeah, but what I like about it is, um, it's a bunch of misfits, basically. It's about a family and, uh, and the story arc is basically a quest, you know, it's a quest story arc as opposed to a hero's journey kind of story arc. Okay. This isn't a remake. This is a new movie. What is it? Okay. But anyway, um, so the quest is they have to get their little girl, uh, out to California because she was um, she made it to the Little Miss Sunshine uh, beauty pageant. You know, it's for for kids, and mm-hmm. um, but you know, it's a misfit of a family, and so all kinds of you know funny things happen. And mm-hmm. it's like it's one of those things where I think maybe because I I feel like I'm a misfit or I consider myself a misfit misfit <laughs> and um and so I kind of identify with I guess pretty much every member of that family. <laughs> is it a nice family or is it dysfunctional? Um, I mean, you can be quirky and still function well in love or you um, can be weird and not function well in love 
I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's it's dysfunctional. Ultimately, they stay together and they you know they work together, and that's sort mm-hmm. of by the end they you know feel closer. Um, but um, but yeah, there's there's also still a lot of dysfunction. <laughs> just like that I know way. dysfunction. Boy, I know that well. <laughs> yes. So that's a nice segue, I think. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So what and did you want to ask me? <laughs> uh, well, I think I think the topic of forgiveness is is very difficult, right? Yes. It's and I was thinking about this. Is it harder to ask for forgiveness or is it harder to actually forgive? I think um, it's the latter. I think both can be challenging. Yes. Both, you know, it depends on what you've done. If um if Mike, my husband, asks me to address an envelope a certain way and I forget because I'm used to doing it a, a different way, um, I'm truly sorry and I will try to, to you know, repair whatever that is. Um, that's easy to ask forgiveness for. And on the flip side, it's easy to offer forgiveness for something like that. If... I have done something that I don't see as an issue, but it has hurt somebody and they are angry and they want me to apologize for something I don't think I've done. Then it's hard to ask for forgiveness. It's like, you know, what is this about? And, you know, where is this coming from? And is it a big deal? And you have to, or I've had to in the past just kind of stop and think, okay, it matters to this person. It matters to this person. And it doesn't matter if I think I'm right or wrong. It, what matters is relationship. And I have to humble myself and offer an apology and offer change. If, if it's a reasonable thing now, if I'm sorry, I thought I turned that off. Um, if it's a dysfunctional thing, you know, then, then you have to weigh, do I ask for forgiveness for something that really is not an issue, but it's showing this person's dysfunction? Does right. that make sense? Yes, you know, it does. Yes. You know, my mother was constantly angry constantly angry and I think that anger was covering up fear but she made life miserable for those anybody who was close around her and she was always demanding always demanding and as I became an adult I realized I I didn't do anything wrong you know I did it was it wasn't me um there was something wrong with her and to ask for forgiveness where it just, there was no reason for it, then I had to stop that for my own sake. Um, and then that makes life tricky because if you've been raised in a dysfunctional atmosphere to, and always told that everything, everything is your fault and um, then you have to 
then you have to learn what real forgiveness is, how to ask for it and how to give it and when to ask for it and when to say, no, um, we're going to cut this off now. Hmm. So, yeah, it's tricky. Forgiveness is just hard all the way around. You know, when somebody has betrayed you on a deep level and then say something very flippant like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, are you? Yeah. <laughs> and then because forgiveness is hard work and to just carelessly betray somebody and then say, oh, it's no big deal. Uh, do I offer forgiveness in that situation? I don't know. I don't know. Every situation is different. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to dive right in. You said you wanted to talk. Yes. About <laughs> no, let's the, the deeper, the dive, the better, uh, especially for a topic like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right there. Every situation is different. It, also depends on the relationship between the people, mm-hmm. um, what kind of relationship they have, uh, what kind of uh, a grievance it is. You know, if it's mm-hmm. truly something that I did wrong to mm-hmm. hurt the other person, whether it was intentional or not, mm-hmm. or is it um, a function of the other person's dysfunction, as you yeah. said. Um, or it, it could also be a misunderstanding. It could be so many things. Yeah, yeah, there are. Yes. But I think one thing you said, though, um, at the end of it, though, is it's ultimately about the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that um, what's needed, whether it's asking for forgiveness or giving forgiveness, or maybe it's clearing up misunderstanding or whatever it is. But ultimately, it is about the relationship and, um, and um, making the relationship better or functional or whole mm-hmm. or, you know, however you want to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Uh, do you want to start talking about your relationship with your mother? Because that's what the book is about. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> or, or where do you want to? Where do you want to start? <laughs> JJ, it's I. I trust you. You tell me where you want to start. Okay, um, maybe you shouldn't trust me. <laughs> no, I do. I do. Um, I know it might be uncomfortable, but I do. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So let's so let's let's put the context because I mean there are a few things that you said already that um, you grew up in a dysfunctional environment, and um, and I, I will admit that I didn't finish your book, but I did start it, and so I I do know the context of of the story. Um, you uh, you didn't really know your father. Uh, did you know him at all? No, they divorced when I was four. I think they separated when I was three. Um, He did not uh, support um, my mother or me. And I believe he came to visit one time when I was six, but because of how erratic he was in support, um, mom asked him not to reveal that he was my father. I see. So... I didn't realize that visit was someone significant, 
good to me, but apparently I liked him a lot. Uh-huh. And, um, but I never saw him again. Yeah. And then I found out in, um, on one of the ancestry.com, you know, with a DNA test, I learned that he had died in 1993. Oh, and wow. um, yeah, and it was any kind of, you know, fantasy that I had about someday reconnecting or finding him or, you know, just exploring what on earth that was all about was gone because he was, he had died. Mm-hmm. So I had to work through that. But yeah, my parents really were two very immature people who really shouldn't have gotten married and really shouldn't have had kids. But um, um, was it just you or do you have siblings? Just me. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Thank God, because seriously, I would have been the oldest one. And then I would have had to take, you know, it was hard enough taking care of myself. Right. And I know people who have had to take care of siblings and um, I don't know that I have the strength for that. It was hard enough just to make it on my own. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, well, in some cases where you have siblings, uh, it makes the siblings grow closer and they kind of help each other. That happens sometimes. Yeah. My family dynamics were more about pitting people against each other. I see. And I think, uh, and you never know because everybody it has a different personality and maybe it would have worked, but as it, as it was, I, I kept getting pitted against my cousins against, Mm. you know, it's like, well, why can't you be like her or why can't you be like him or why can't, and it's like, I, that would have been on steroids if it had been siblings. And so, so no, it was just me. Um, Yeah. And in your book, you said, um, that your early you pretty much grew up until you were about 12 or 13 I think uh, mm-hmm. with your grandparents yes I did uh, and then uh, and then at that time you moved in with your mother and that's sort of when so were you was things your, got interesting <laughs> things got interesting yes <laughs> was your time with your grandparents what was that like was it good or was it that is something that psychologists would call Benevolent neglect. Mm-hmm. I had uh, food and shelter, and you know I got to go to school and I was taken to church, um, but pretty much left on my own. So I had a forty-acre farm that I could go and play with, and my cousins were on the farm next to me, so I could always run over there and have somebody to hang out with. And so I was pretty uh, much left to my own. Dis- devices and fortunately here's the cat (laughs) what's the cat's name that one is willow willow nice (laughs) yes big furry tail yes she and her daughter were rescued were alley cat rescues and so wow they're very pushy (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i my experience with cats has always been they they get what they want <laughs> yes 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 within reason yeah we're gonna go through that a lot I'm really sorry <laughs> no that's that's perfectly fine um so okay so I'm sorry so we were talking about um being on the farm yeah 
And so um, the farm was great and I loved school. So I loved to learn. So um, yeah, I was pretty much on my own. My, my grandparents were immigrants from what they called the old country, which was um, part of the Austrian Hungarian empire. In fact, my grandfather had stowed away on a boat to, um, to come to the United States at age 14. And wow. so, yeah. So it gives a whole um, view. I have a very different viewpoint on immigration because, you know, my grandfather was a stowaway. <laughs> so when, you know, people need to get someplace safe. And so he did the best he could because at 15 in the Austrian empire at that time, uh, boys were conscripted into the army. And so he was trying to avoid that because it was just people got chewed up and spit out and he was just trying to get away from that. But he was a deeply flawed man, even though he did work to get his family over here, he worked very hard to do that. And once he did, that was it. He had pretty much done all he wanted to in life. And um, he was a miserable husband and a miserable father. And, oh, wow. But I had the benefit <laughs> of him having a, a massive stroke right, right when I came to live with him. And because oh. of that, I did not uh, suffer the violence that he had done to the rest of his family. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so then it was just you and your grandmother and your cousins. Well, my, my grandfather did um, recover and had some, you know, had some function, but he wasn't able to physically do things. Okay. Okay. So he had a stroke, um, but he didn't die. He didn't die. So, okay. Was he, did he, was he invalid or? No, he did eventually um, gain the ability to walk, but he didn't have the same kind of strength that he had before. So he right. had to quit farming and his son took over the farm. Um, you know, he just, he just did not have the same kind of quality of life as he had <laughs> she will eventually settle down i promise um, no maybe i should have booked her as a guest <laughs> i can i could do that next time no no i'll just put it right here <laughs> it's fine it could be the the cat show it could literally be the cat video <laughs> hey they're very popular with booster ratings <laughs> yes um Okay, so, so I mean, in a way that that was fortunate. Um, it was yeah. a huge blessing for me. I mean, perhaps not for him, but I'm sure for my grandmother mm -hmm. and for for me. So um, it didn't mean that he still wasn't an angry man, right? But English was not his primary language. So when he really got worked up, it was in German, and you know. Oh. What did I care? <laughs> did did you pick up any other German while growing up? Not much. I remember one time, um, I was around five or six, and my grandfather had said I could share some blueberries with him. So I was standing next to him and eating them. And he started talking to my grandmother, and it was really clear that he was mad 
that I was eating the blueberries and they're having this conversation. And finally I said, well, you said I could. And they both were absolutely shocked because they always use German to hide what they were talking about in front of me. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I could pick up some things, but I don't know German. I don't know any German at all. Yeah. Um, Is the German culture where, um, you you know, you kind of offer something but don't really mean it? Because like the Korean culture is is sort of, this is this is an aspect of the Korean culture that I don't like necessarily is the sort of polite refusal. So, you know, you're offered something and you're expected to refuse because that's being polite. So, but if you accept it, that's a little rude. Um, But so, but if you flip the table, if I offer something and they refuse it and having grown up here, I'm like, okay, they refuse it. They don't want it. No, but that's rude to not offer it again. (laughs) Yeah. I, I have some Asian friends and I think that's not just Korean. I think it's Chinese as well. I don't know about Japan, but, um, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no Germans have their own weird things (laughs) and and every culture does, but, uh, with Germans, it's very much, you have to earn, you have to earn respect. You have to earn love. You're just not loved. You have to earn it. And so that makes it really interesting when you become a Christian (laughs) trying to receive God's grace (laughs) when you, when you're taught that you're supposed to earn it. So it's a lot of, yeah, a lot of anger in the German culture, at least in the German culture I was raised in. Yeah, which is interesting because if you think about it, it, it is the German uh, and maybe Austrian kind of uh, setting when where uh, Martin Luther and Calvinism sprung up, which mm-hmm. basically says, uh, no, it's uh, unconditional love. You didn't do anything to deserve it. It is given to you unconditionally. So yeah. that's rather uh, contradictory, and I and I countercultural, yeah, countercultural. So maybe maybe there is something to that, right? Because uh, maybe it was so. <laughs> oh yeah. That oh, that yeah. The theologians have to had to say like, no, you know what? I think God is completely different from us. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he is. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so why, um, was it that, um, when you, was it when you were 12, right? I think when you were 12, you moved from your grandparents to your, to your mother's, um, was, did something happen or why were you moved? Well, it was kind of a combination of things. Um, my grandparents were getting older. Grandma was starting to have health issues, which grew into severe health issues, which led to her death. Um, And mom always had the goal of having me live with her, but she lived in apartments in Detroit. She didn't have a real home and um, just was saving her money and saving her money and saving her money to get a house. And so she finally was able to get a house in one of the Detroit suburbs and then the plan was that not only was I going to move there, but my grandparents would too. And a year later they did, but that then grandma's health was so bad. She didn't live with us very long, which is too bad because she was the buffer between us. 
She was poor yes. woman. Yes. Uh, what she did? Did your grandmother act as the buffer when you were living in her farm? I think so. I think she buffered between my grandfather and I quite a bit. And um, my mother would come and visit every other weekend. And at those times, grandma was in a really strange situation. You know, she was my primary caregiver. She was more my mother than anybody. But when my mother came, she had to take a step back because if she corrected my mother on something she was doing with me, that was not welcomed. And that would, my mother was more like my grandfather than she was like my mom, my grandmother. I see. So fireworks would go off. Yeah. So then when mom would go back to Detroit, a lot of times I would ask grandma about what had happened the weekend. And in, you know, as best she could, she would try to explain it while trying to foster uh, respect and honor for my mother, whom she knew was not doing a good job, but, but tried to help her anyway. Well, that, your grandmother was some woman. Um... You know, she was, she was an uneducated woman. I don't think she got past what we would call second or third grade. Um, and she was, she was basically the family slave of her mother and stepfather and his mm. three boys. She had a really awful upbringing and she had a really awful marriage. And somewhere along the line, she found faith. And that she had you know, I, I said in the book, she had the faith of Abraham. She was able to pray about things that she would never see, but she still believed it. She still would pray for me, for my future, for her, her children. Um, she just prayed a lot. And I don't know that she ever saw the fruit of those prayers because I did not come to any kind of faith until after she was gone. Neither did my mother. Um, my grandfather did eventually come to faith right before he died. And it's like, um, yeah, I don't know how she did it. I really don't know how she did it. Yeah. Sometimes I don't know how my mother does it either. Um, well, yeah, I don't want to get too much into that. Um, well, okay i'll get into it maybe later but okay let's <laughs> we can do it now <laughs> um amazing you know it's these women should be honored they're complicated but you know they're also amazing and their stories need to be told part of the reason i told my story is to tell yeah grandma's story <laughs> oh okay yeah um yeah, and if you think about it, that's interesting because there's your grandmother and your mother and you. Um, mm -hmm. So it's three generations uh, of, of women. Um, well, the reason why I don't really want to get into um, me and my mother is that we don't always get along. So it's, 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 it's a difficult story. <laughs> that's a mother-daughter thing. It's, some, some are worse than others, but it's a mother-daughter dynamic. Oh my gosh. Yeah, what is up with that <laughs> can't tell you because yeah you know 
I'm not a mother, so I don't really know. I suspect part of it is jealousy. Um, You know, jealousy for, I mean, I had opportunities that my mother or grandmother never had. Yeah. And, you know, as you're aging and somebody's younger and has, you know, more opportunities, kind of, I'm sure there's a aspect of, man, she doesn't know how good she has it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if it's, that um uh well i think between me and my mother i think um i often just kind of uh consider it a personality conflict um Mm -hmm. so i I, in my personality i feel like i'm a combination of me uh my mother and my father um but um the aspects of my personality and my mother's personality where we're alike are the also the places where we clash the most (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) so so we're we're the same in the dysfunctional aspects of (laughs) we are together (laughs) i think that's just normal (laughs) Uh, and i think we we may also bring it out in each other too <laughs> you know it's like the more yeah. she is a certain way the more I am like that and sort of match you know that level of escalating yes. up a little yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just I'll show you <laughs> yeah um and um also different from your situation where um after you grew up you and your mother you you've you became estranged for 10 years, I think you said. Little, I think it was close to 11. But. Okay, uh, 11 years. Uh, in my case, he's been living with me for 25. I, and you're living with your mom, so it's a, it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing. But anyway, um, yeah, let's come back to that. <laughs> Get back to you. So, yeah, you'll find that talking with me is like going down a lot of rabbit trails, just so uh, you know. I do, oh, I it's, do been, that. it's been like that with every guest. I think okay. it's me. I no, think I'm the well, rabbit hole chaser. Okay. But two of us together is going to make a very interesting <laughs> time. But I do have to get off at one because I have to take Mike for his second COVID shot. Okay. Oh, okay. Today's uh, COVID. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So your grandmother, your grandmother really was the pillar in your family, keeping she was everyone together. Um, and and her being the recipient of the abusive natures of your fa- your grandfather and your mother, um, it's a different kind sons. of strength. And her and sons her too. sons. Oh. Yeah, she got it everywhere. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember uh, when I started becoming a teenager, I started seeing that behavior come out in me too, which just broke my heart that, um, you know, mom was always screaming at her about something and something happened one day getting ready for school. And I did the same thing. And I just, I just was heart sick. That's not the person I wanted to be. And I, I just remember the look on her face of being so hurt and um, realizing that 
no, no, can't be like this. Can't be like this. How old were you when, when that happened? I was probably 14. Okay. So, I mean, so you're old enough to, you know. To process. process. To, yeah. First it was a reaction, but it was a reaction that had been modeled for me. Mm-hmm. And then there was the thought process of, no, no, you don't like it in others. You don't want to do it yourself. But of course you can think that, but having the power to do anything about that is, is something separate. And you can have all the best intentions, but it's a process to learn to be a better person. It really is. And it's, there's um, a level of a, um, a will that you have to summon up to make that decision. And then, and then a series of conscious choices. Like you have to constantly, you know, consciously make the decision to not be, uh, not fall into that, that habit or that tendency. You do, but sometimes, yeah. but sometimes um, that's not enough. And sometimes you have to go into counseling to get the right tools to kind of reset your thinking and your, so that your behavior goes. So I'm a big proponent of going into counseling um, and just learning good tools to process life better than what you have. No matter how functional you are, counseling does not hurt. <laughs> so I'm really a big proponent for counseling. <laughs> um you know you i i you you call yourself or your website is the pastoral artist Mm -hmm. um and is it um are you a pastor um is that why it's called the pastoral artist how much down the faith road do you want to go with this? Okay. <laughs> oh no. Let's go anywhere. Let's let's okay. go where wherever it takes us. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have been commissioned as a Stevens minister, which is a care pastoral sort of thing. Um, I came up with the name, or the name was dropped into me one day when I was I went to a writers conference. Um, because I was working on this manuscript. I didn't know why I was working on this manuscript. I do not consider myself a writer. And, um, but I just felt compelled that I needed to to write that story and to be as vulnerable and as honest as I could. So there's some ugly things in there because that's how I felt and that's what was going on. but the feedback I've got from that raw honesty has been really positive because other caregivers have said, I thought I was the only one who felt that way. So, yeah. so as I was going to this um, writer's workshop, they were really impressing on the need for a blog and a website. And I was like, oh, just one more thing I have to do, which is if you have seen my website and you know it's in desperate need of revamping. <laughs> but when I first set it up, it was it was much better than it is now. And um, 
and I was and I thought, okay, I have to do this. What do I call it? And it was like that name was just kind of dropped the pastoral artist because yeah, I do pastoral work, although I'm, I don't have the title and I don't really want the title because to be a pastor in this country, in this culture is toxic. Um, um, there, there's so many pastors um, burn out after seven years. There's so much scandal. There's so much, uh, it, because it's it's not designed the way God designed the church. He designed all the gifts to work together and not to have just one person at the pulpit overseeing everything. Um, so a pastoral gift is a mercy gift. Mm. And it's a gift that comes alongside a, per, a person in crisis and tends to their soul, where we call it, you know, everything. It's like a catch-all phrase for everything. So I use it more in the biblical sense of a pastoral. Um, and so I've got an artist group that meets at the studio, um, and they consider me their pastor, whether for good or bad. And um, yeah, and I come alongside of people in crisis, usually artists, and I, so, so I'm a pastor in that sense in the yes. in the sense of spiritual gifting of pastoral and mercy yes and and that's the sense i got actually uh, now if you ask me yeah. to be an administrative gift that's not going to fly <laughs> you're, you're going to be deeply disappointed <laughs> and and the gift of pastoring is is um it is a spiritual gift um it's not church administration it's not mm. you know position of power necessarily but you know and i would maybe i don't know maybe the term lay pastor you know i don't know i've heard that term also um yeah. you know somebody who you know ministers spiritually to their fellow um you know church member or or fellow human being um yeah, because it doesn't have to be somebody in the church. Exactly. You, know, you can come alongside, you know, there's been times I've been out in public. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure the person that I'm caring for has no idea who Jesus is mm -hmm. and really doesn't care at that moment. They're in crisis. They need somebody to listen to them. I'm free and I can, you know, just sit there and, and, and listen. Listening is a big thing. Not many people do it. It is a huge thing. And I think it, that's something we also need um, to learn how to do. Um, yeah, I think I used yeah. to be a better listener than I am now. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I used yeah. to be a really good listener. Now it takes more effort. Right? And I, yeah, it's one of I those things. Yeah, I don't know if it's the attention span or stamina or... You know, it does take a lot out of you. I don't think people really understand because active listening isn't just sitting there and going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like processing it. And for me, it's also praying. So I'm listening to yes. the person, but I'm also trying to listen to the voice of God. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very active. And 
you do that for a few hours and you're wasted. <laughs> you're yeah. just wasted. Yeah. Um, so let's let's go back to your the our main story. Um, so you're 12, you move back and with your mother, and soon after that, your both your grandparents move mm-hmm. in. So your grandfather is still alive. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, so that's a, a, what was that like? Big, ha- I'm sure not big, happy family. <laughs> yeah. You know, before I was on a, a farm with 40 acres, yes. now I'm in a two bedroom, small, tiny ranch with, you know, for them, it's a large yard, but for somebody from 40 acres, this is like a postage stamp. And so there's no place to hide. There's no place to go. I just have to be with um, this family. And grandma was hospitalized a lot after she moved in. She spent more time in the hospital than she did at home. And when I was 15 is when she passed away. And my grandfather who made her life a living nightmare told me he would not be able to live six months without her, which did not make sense. And there was nothing wrong with him. And within six months he was gone. So that's how weird dysfunctional families work. Um, I think there's also a, a kind of a codependency that develops between the abuser and the abused um, that in some way the abuser needs the abused. Yeah. Yeah. And they've been together for 50 years. So There's that. Yeah. They, he needed that. And, yeah. Yeah. And he was gone, which was actually good for me because, um, like I said, my mother was very much like her father and to have two of them, mm. even though they were different generations, and even though uh, physically my grandfather could not act out his anger, he's, he was still a difficult man. And so when he was gone, at least I had some hours in the day of peace. Because mm-hmm. mom worked and she was working um, first in Detroit and then in one of the suburbs of Detroit. But she was like an hour's drive or 40 minute drive away from home. So from the time I got out of school till the time she got home around six, I had space to breathe. And that was, I'm so glad I had that. That was necessary. And back then, um, I mean, did you have like after school programs or? Oh, I was not allowed to do any of that. I was very isolated. Yeah, because the idea of... um, And this is a little bit what you were talking about culturally, but if I was given an invitation to go someplace to somebody's house after school, that would mean that we would have to reciprocate. And mom didn't want to do that. She she wasn't proud of her house. She was very aware of social differences much more than I was. Um, she was not a woman who entertained. And so she did not want to 
have to reciprocate. So the easy way is to just deny me any kind of social life. So I did not, I did not do anything. I didn't have transportation because she was at uh, work. And, um, but I was a member of the high, the junior high and the high school band, the marching band. So that was my social network. And I was able to do things because I was part of the band. They were my peeps. <laughs> what did you play? Flute. The flute. Nice. Yeah. Do you, have you kept it up? My flute is broken right now and I need to replace it. Um, and I'm kind of thinking about maybe taking lessons again to get a, a little more proficiency. I was, I was okay. I at the, at my senior year, I was the first chair, but um, I didn't keep it up. I went to college and I started out and then I realized the time commitment it was going to take was not something that I wanted to do with everything else that was in my life at that time. So that's when I quit doing it on a regular basis. And I, I do miss it, but um, my um, embouchure needs yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> I think you need to get your flute fixed. <laughs> I do, or a replacement. I mean, yes. gosh, the thing is, I'm not even going to tell you how many years old it is because <laughs> I got it when I was in fifth grade. So, wow. yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a family heirloom. Well, don't throw yeah. it out, even if you don't. No, but it's it. yeah. I'm due for an upgrade. But believe me, yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, uh, when you went to college, did you study art? Did you did you know you wanted to be an artist? You know, I always did art as a kid, but I was raised in a poverty, you know, a, a genteel poverty. I had enough to food to eat. And because mom worked at Sears, I was able to dress like I was middle-class. So I think I didn't get some of the pushback that some people do in poverty, but it was more a genteel poverty. I had food, I had clothes, but I didn't have opportunity. And the idea, guess who's back? <laughs> the idea of somebody, making having a living as an artist especially a woman was like no that's not even in the cards so when I went to college at first um it was for psychology because as I said I really see the need for good counselors and I'm sorry she distracted me um and I've was thinking about going into art therapy. So I did a double major in psychology and art, but um, I, I quickly realized then, and I think, I think people are more open to counseling now than they were, you know, 40 years ago. Definitely, but, yeah. But back at that time, the only time you went into counseling was when it was court mandated. And there really isn't much hope of somebody doing lifestyle changes if somebody's making them do it. And I realized that my personality is such that if I offer you a way to fix your problem and you don't do it, I am going to go crazy. <laughs> it's like I just get too invested. And so I, 
I went more into the art after that. It's like, you know what? This is, you know, psychology is not the place for me. I can't, I can't separate enough from it. And so I went on and just focused in the art. But um, eventually you did find your way back into uh, counseling. Yes. Isn't that funny? <laughs> God has a sense of humor, I gotta tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's like, there's no denying something that he's given you to do. It's like, eventually, yeah, yeah, yeah you have to find, yeah, you will find your way to do it. Um, so how, um, when did you eventually move out of your mother's home? Well, the first time was when I was 19. I went away to college, but I came back for a year because I thought I had met the one. Ah. <laughs> so, so I was, I came home and I was, um, I got a job and I was saving up so that we could get married. And, um, you know, his dream was to be a pastor which, oh my gosh, me as a pastor's wife is a disaster. <laughs> that would have been a terrible, terrible, terrible mix. And, um, and I did eventually realize that and, um, and broke it off. And so I took the money that I was saving and started looking for a job anywhere in the United States. So I started just putting out different... Um, applications and I got a job at a college at a at a Christian college in Grand Rapids oh oh, wait (laughs) Uh, in Grand Rapids and so I moved here when I was in my early 20s I don't remember exactly how old I was so from Detroit to Grand Rapids Mm -hmm. Um, my goal was first my first plan was I was going to keep moving west. I was going to first move to Grand Rapids, work here eh, three three to five years. Then I was going to try to get a job in Chicago, work there for a while. And I was going to just kind of work my way west. And um, but when I when I came to Grand Rapids, I decided to go back to college and finish my degree. And so as I did that, then I met Mike, who is is the one (laughs) and so I'm still here never made it to Chicago although I visit quite a bit um so you're so Mike is from Grand Rapids no he's originally from Ohio oh okay and then um his family his father worked in the chemist chemical industry and Dow bought their company so then he moved as a teenager he moved to Midland and he lived there. And then after he got out of college, he was looking for a job. He ended up in Grand Rapids. And we were supposed to meet here, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. I but um, but, I mean, but you also decided to settle there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, what's Grand Rapids like? Well, right now, it's very conservative. It's okay. Um, it's. It's, I'm an odd duck here, but um, there, I'm waiting to see how things shake out after this last election, because there is a huge influence of the evangelical church in this city. Mm. It's the home of uh, different Christian publishing companies like Baker, Erdman, Zondervan, 
um, there's a huge uh, influence of the Christian Reformed Church here. Uh, and you just, it's just this past election cycle, it became very toxic, and as it has all over the United States. But here, especially, it's, it's extremely conservative. And there's a lot of people now pushing back on that and asking, um, you know, how the church, the church, reacted to basically, and I'll probably get some people mad at me here. I, I hope you're ready for that, but oh, no, you know, it's fine. For, for idolatry, you know, for um, taking a person who is clearly not a person of faith and setting them up as an idol and then worshiping them uh, that they can do no wrong. And it led to a complete breakdown of civilization as we knew it. And there's yeah. a question of, okay, talk about forgiveness. I am really struggling at this point to know how to do community with people that I've known for years who all of a sudden started posting just hateful things on social media and claiming that it was a way of expressing faith. It's like, I don't know what Jesus, you know, but I never, this is not, this is not the way he expressed that we were supposed to follow him. And so, yeah, this new era that we're coming into is going to require a lot of forgiveness um, and not necessarily trust. Yeah, that's going to be earned. That, that, there's so much to unpack in that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't even know where to begin you know it's just like just even having and the part of um the reason why I wanted to have a podcast is so that we could have these difficult discussions mm-hmm. um but like when it comes to how politics especially you know in the past couple of cycles uh national elections um how religion and the religious community and the political community they just there was an interesting sort of I don't know alchemy or something it was sort of like an unnatural unholy kind of union very it's a perfect way of describing it it is an unholy union it's it was um, just and and it, part of me though I I my personal take on it is that they didn't actually believe what they were saying. They were just pushing their political agenda and this was the way to do it. Um, that well, Some people felt that way, but some people actually doubled down and, and you will not convince them that he is not a righteous man. That is unfathomable. See, now... I now He's from New York. I grew up in New York. You anyone, know a lot. <laughs> anyone who's grown up in New York or has spent any you know decent amount of time in New York and knew him before he became president know who he is <laughs> and how he is. Anybody who reads the news, who ever read the news, you know. I guess so and I think it's very telling. I saw an interview yesterday. Um 
Are you aware that the Wisconsin senator or representative has said that uh, January 6th was not a big deal? It wasn't violent and wasn't, you know, he wasn't afraid. And, right. and you know, he's, he's, he's just trying to rewrite history. And when um, a journalist asked his constituents, well, what do you think? People say, well, I don't really know what he said. I, didn't, I haven't read it. I haven't heard it, but I'm sure he, he has access to information that, uh, that supports his, his reasoning. And it's like, people just don't want to know. They don't want to know. That's the other thing is, um, and it's been happening uh, over decades, really, uh, over time, but really ramped up in the past couple of election cycles. Um, that people, well, maybe more than a couple, um, maybe going back to early 2000s or whatever. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I mean, you could go back or far, to the 80s or, or to the 80s or to the 1700s. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, but, but, but more, I, I would say, uh, more apparent, uh, particularly because of social media. Uh, because so many people are unafraid to voice their uh, opinions and it's out there. Uh, so you do see it more. And, but this sort of suspension of reality <laughs> um, that, you know, or this sort of loyalty to camps, you know, just because somebody is in your camp or in your tribe, and that's a word that's been thrown around a lot. Um, or just because somebody is of the same affiliation with which you identify politically, religiously, or other forms of identity, that whatever that person says or does is it must be true, it must be right, even though it is completely not. Um, that kind of sort of suspension of uh, reality, I just find it really puzzling. It is, it's also dangerous. It's very dangerous, yes. Um, and, and the thing is, it's not happening only on one side of the political aisle. It's happening right. everywhere. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It, you just see demonization on both sides. And if you say, well, wait a minute, you know, I can see this, I can see that. It's like, you are just shut out, which is hard for someone like me because I'm a moderate. I'm not, you know, I'm not, yes. Although moderates seem to be going more and more left in the, the way the, the spectrum is, is going, but I've always been considered a moderate and I've always, um, you know, voted according to issues and not according to yeah. you know camps but part of what has happened is for the white evangelical church one issue has become the only issue which is abortion oh, okay yes and so the idea of racism or injustice oh that's really not that bad you know uh, and it's become really yeah. it really isn't pro-life, although people will present it that way, um, it's really pro-birth. Because after birth, there doesn't seem to be a real uh, concern mm -hmm. about what happens to the mother and the child, uh, mm -hmm. what happens with health care, what happens with education. Uh, you know, 
safety or community for those children that have been born. It's only important that they're born. Now, I'm not saying that um, abortion is the answer. Right. Uh, I think it's a very complex and nuanced situation. Um, I'm never going to judge somebody who has had an abortion. I'm just never going to go there. Same here. Yeah. And at the same time, I have known women who have been forced by their partner to have an abortion when they didn't want to. And those men are on the lines, you know, fighting for abortion because they want to avoid the responsibility of what of their actions. And I can't get behind that. You know, forced abortion is another way to abuse women. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also so, forced force term pregnancies too. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's why I say it's nuanced. It's it's not it's not something that um, what one size fits all. And you can't make that, your politics all about one issue. Yeah. And, and even the, even if you were, even if you did to basically boil it down to sanctity of life and nothing else. And nothing else. And that's, it's, it's not a healthy way to discuss any kind of complex issues. No, it's not. And we have so many complex issues right now. (laughs) And, and people are clinging to simplistic forms of thinking. Uh, I think it was Carl Jung said, I think it was Carl Jung, I'm not sure. Um, Someone famous said, um, thinking is really hard work and that's why it's so much easier to judge. Oh yes, (laughs) whoever said that is absolutely right. Yes, yes, yes. And I find myself too, you know, I'm not saying that I don't judge because it's very easy to judge. And it's like going back to when we started about counseling and tools and, and being a better person. Yes, you have those propensities, but you don't give in to them. You, you catch yourself and you say, no, that's not the person I want to be. You use the tools of, you know, talking yourself down from that. And usually she goes to sleep. I don't know why she keeps doing this. Is this her nap time? Yes. Oh, I think it's because she knows you're on the phone. You know, you're talking to somebody. She Well, yeah, at first she usually does that like any other Zoom meeting. She'll do that at the beginning. But then, you know, by this time she has settled down. Uh, I see. Um, okay. Um, so how do we get into this? Uh, you you said... would ask me what Grand Rapids was like because I had oh, moved right. from from Utica to Grand Rapids and you asked me what it was like and I went down a rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) We went down the rabbit hole. Uh, No, but it's It's all about forgiveness though. So it really is. Cause even if you think about that, um, it is, how do you live with, um, you know, or be in a community with people that right now the way the political climate is we vehemently disagree with and you know there's so much vitriol and hatred and all kinds of oh my gosh yes judgment my poor poor pastor has really taken a lot of heat Hmm. from people who just don't want to wear masks they just think it's Hmm. a it's absolutely abhorrent 
And uh, most of those people have left. And which actually, I pray for them. And I pray that they find a place where they can grow spiritually and learn more about, um, you know, the golden rule and Jesus teaching. And it takes time. It yeah. takes time. Um, and I know that God loves these people mm-hmm. madly, dearly. And I do too, but I don't trust them. You know, they, they've gotten to the point with the vitriol and with the, and the rights issue that I don't trust that um, you would do what is right for the people around you. So my husband has a, um, a heart issue. And if that's an underlying issue. And so if you insist on not wearing a mask around him, you are endangering him. And if he got the got COVID and ended up in the hospital and ended up dead, I would have had a very hard time going into forgiveness. I mean, I'll just be real honest right there. Your, your actions, if your actions lead to the death of somebody close to me, forgiveness is going to be really, really hard. And um, yeah, I, I don't even know how to go there. It was hard enough to forgive my mother. <laughs> and she's blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she was crazy. <laughs> Yeah. So, so let's get back to your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get back to mom. Okay. Um, So you, you, you moved out. um, So you were early twenties. So you were living with her. um, About, I think eight years. Yeah. Okay. Um, And so when you moved out, you got married and you moved out is. Oh, no, no. I moved out before I got married. I I didn't get married till I was in my 30s. Oh, really? Okay. So you were. uh, Okay. So you moved out in your early 20s. -hmm. So you weren't living with her for a good deal of time, um, which includes the 10 year, 11 year estrangement. So Mm -hmm. altogether is what like. 20 years or so that together what altogether that I mean since you moved out okay so since you moved out and since you reconciled what is the time frame time period there oh I'm (laughs) you're gonna make me tell my age aren't you oh sorry Uh, no 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 no. I didn't I didn't mean that I know that I'm no it's okay it's okay I'm teasing you know some women just will not tell their age it's I'm 66 but um I'm 52 there. Now it's out there. <laughs> now it's out. It's a good thing to be honest and forthright. I moved out in my 20s. I got married in my 30s. I think I was 40-ish when we disconnected. Um she I had given her some options. Um, she was she was very toxic. She tried to insert herself into my marriage the very first week I was married. And I said, no, it's <laughs> not going to happen. Um, she was very offended by that. And she was just, she just did not understand boundaries. She did not understand how to build relationship. She just, she really, she was funny. Um, you know, and she was a hard worker, but when it came to interpersonal relationships, she was really adrift. And so 
there came a point where once again, she was trying to steamroll me about something. And I don't even remember what it was, but I said, okay, this is it. This is it. Uh, you've crossed the line. This isn't going to happen anymore. So here's your options. You go to counseling. You go either with me or without me, but that, that is what you need to do in order to stay in my life. And she was on the phone at that time and she hung up on me. And that was pretty much the answer. That was like in May and in, uh, as we were approaching Christmas that year, um, I started thinking, ugh, Christmas, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to call her. I'm gonna have to you know, go through this whole rigmarole again. Cause I had kind of taken on that role that my grandmother did of always being the peacemaker, always being the, the person who solved all the problems, always being um, the one who smoothed things over. And um, I was, I remember this so clearly, I was driving and a lot of times I turn my car into a prayer mobile because you know, I'm focused on the road. There's no other distractions. I can just stop. <laughs> so I'm just driving and I'm, I'm whining. My prayer a lot of times ends up being whining, but it's really honest. So I, I make no apologies. And I'm talking to God and I'm saying, oh, Christmas is coming and I'm going to have to call her and, you know, I'm going to be the doormat again. And I'm just, you know, really frothing at the mouth, just, just really complaining about it just how unfair it was and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, God is so, so kind, so much nicer than people really give him credit for. He let me rant. He let me go. I mean, I ranted, I ranted, and I kind of ran out of steam and, you know, I was finally done. And JJ, it was like a voice in the back seat. And, you know, I even kind of turned around really quick because I heard a voice say, don't get in my way as I work in her life. And I like, I, you know, that took me by surprise. I kind of shut up for a second because I was shocked, A, that I heard this voice, and B, that I was getting in the way. <laughs> I was being helpful. Yes. I was good. It's <laughs> not about you. <laughs> what and I heard it again only this time it was more of an internal voice but you know and I'm driving silently for a moment and I just said can I have 10 years off really wow I did I did I said can I have 10 years off you know I I've never thought about it in those terms (laughs) you're giving me ideas don't do that to your mom. <laughs> okay. Okay. Ask ask for a greater amount of peace. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I I that time when I said, "Can I have ten years off?" I didn't hear the voice, but I did have this sense of peace. Um, and I didn't quite trust that until a full year went past and I didn't hear anything from her, and then I realized. I'm going to have 10 years off. <laughs> I'm going to have I'm going to have breathing space. I'm going to have sanity. 
I'm going to have peace. And it was, it was a huge gift to me. And I think it was a huge gift to my mother because part of, I want people to understand that my mother was not an evil person. She was a person who was vastly unable to cope with life and did not have the tools and did not have the strength of character to ask for the tools. She would not go into counseling. She would not admit she was ever wrong. She was, she just, she just couldn't do that. And it's not because she was evil. It's because she was a very, very weak person. And, um, and so I got a rest, but she got a rest from trying to be a parent when she didn't know how. She was trying to be a mother to an adult woman who didn't need what she was offering. She wasn't a mother to a child and she wasn't able to be a mother to a teenager and she wasn't able to be a mother to an adult. She just wasn't able to do that role. And she got space for God to work in her life too. And, um, you know, the first couple of years, I just really enjoyed the peace. But after a while, the Lord kind of uh, shepherded me to say, you know, you're not 100% innocent in all of this. Um, you need to get some tools, too. And so I went back into counseling to prepare myself for when she came back into my life, because I knew eventually she would. And so I needed to kind of tweak things and grow in different areas of trust and, you know, trusting myself, really, and uh, to prepare, because sooner or later, I figured I'd get a call that, you know, she needed some kind of help, because I never, ever thought I'd get a call from her. I thought it would be some family member saying, she's in the hospital, she's dying, she needs you to come. I, I really, and that's the call I thought I would get. Um, so I was really surprised. When 10 years was up or was coming to the end, I said, can I have another 10? <laughs> Don't be greedy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I, I didn't get the voice that time, but I did get an extra year. I, did, I, get, I got 11, so. But then um, I got. Um, yeah. Going, going back a little bit to what you said that, um, you know, God telling you basically that, hey, you need, you need to work on yourself as well. Mm. Um, Me? I'm so wonderful. Right, right. Oh, no, the way you put it was you're not all that innocent, I think is, is how you put it. That um, that as much as dysfunctional and uh, unequipped as your mother was and contributing to that dysfunctional home, that um, you are not completely innocent. Now, I, that, that's something that's hard to accept, I think. 
um for a lot of people because you know they could say they could argue well you were just a child what did you know and you were just well and that's that's true it's true and i'm never going to tell somebody as a child you were not okay for for not standing up to abuse i'm never going to go down that path right and even as a teenager you know you're starting to become more aware and you you understand there's injustice here but you still don't have the tools you you don't but by the time i was in my 30s you know it's, I think the Apostle Paul said, when I was a child, you know, when I became a man, I gave up childish things. And um, I was still, there's, there was still part of me on the inside that was that little girl who was experiencing injustice and, and didn't know how to deal with that effectively. And so what I one of the things that I learned as a coping mechanism with my mom in my 20s, I learned how to turn the tables on her. So if she was going, if she was ramping up the crazy on something, I would just turn the tables on her and all of a sudden make it about her and, um, and push back really, really hard. And that always dis, it always disarmed the situation but it wasn't necessarily the best thing to do. Right. I think the first couple of times it was good because it was a wake up call for her of, okay, no, I can't do this. She never did do take the wake up call, but later in my prayer life, um, as I was, I think it was when I was caring for my mother, um, the Lord kind of brought these things back. He's a really good counselor in that he knows how to set up a scene and then he knows when to bring something out to present it. So if you get, you know, thoughts from the past that are just condemning you and harassing you, that's not God because God doesn't work that way. What he does, he kind of sets the scene and then brings something up and says, let's talk. And so he had set a scene and he brought something up and he said, let's talk. When you were a young woman and your mom started going down certain paths, what did you do? And I had to admit, I would shove right back just as hard because I was mad. I was so angry that I just wasn't going to take it anymore. And so I shoved her back verbally. I never, I, I never... Uh, touched her, but I, I shoved back verbally very, very hard so that she had no place to hide and she would withdraw. And he said, you know why you did that? And I thought I did. (laughs) And he he just kind of, you know, waited a moment. He said, you didn't trust me to take care of it. Hmm. And that is that's hard. Uh, it's true. It's true. I decided that God wasn't doing anything. So I was going to take care of it myself. I was going to turn the tables on her and I was going to push back really, really hard and make her shut up. And um, his way probably would have been more productive in both of our lives. Uh, we might have been able to actually work through those hard conversations um, had I modeled. Christ better. But the thing with modeling Christ 
um, is you can, you'll get hurt. I mean, Jesus was killed. And to, to live the Jesus way, um, yeah, I've seen miracles. I've seen, I've seen miracles. I've had miracles happen to me. That has kind of expanded my view of God because I thought it was one way and he's shown that he's much bigger than my box was. But yet I know people who expect miracles on everything refuse to get medical help because God can heal them. He can, but he may choose not to. And medical healing is not a second rate type of healing. You know, going in for medical help when you need it is not, is not a lack of faith. And so I've seen people, especially in the United States, uh, say that, you know, if you, if you become a Christian, uh, God will make everything easy for you. And uh, God will heal you all the time. And God will solve your problems every time. That is so you, wrong. Well, in a way he does, but not the way you think. Not the I way mean, you think. <laughs> yeah, he'll solve your problems if you get in the mess and and work through the mess and that mess might take 20 years. Yes. You know. <laughs> and yeah, he might heal you instantly through prayer or it might be through uh, a medical intervention or it might be through death. Well, cuz in cause... death you go into eternal life. So you're healed. You know, it's just <laughs> exactly cuz cuz you know, his goal is not your goal. His goal is not to make your life easy. I know, it's, and I wish to, it was. <laughs> it's to make you into his image, which yeah. depending on how yeah. screwed up you are, uh, you might have to go through a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> go through yeah. the ringer a few times. <laughs> a few. I think it's never ending <laughs> till we die. Yeah. <laughs> I just want I just want to get with the program so that, you know, I can, I don't have to go around that same mountain like the Israelites going around that same mountain over and over again. <laughs> like, like a different movement. Only if we would learn, you know. <laughs> I, know I know. You know, I've been going through my journal from the 90s. I've been just kind of, I've been trying to think, do I really want to keep this? So I've just been rereading it. And I'm like in 96. And for one thing, I can see how global warming is real. Because in 95 or 96, we had snow already in November, and it lasted until April. And we didn't have snow here until January this year, and it was gone by the end of February. Wow. So it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, I knew that things are changed, but all you have to do is keep a journal, and you will see it. <laughs> but I also see that I'm whining about the very same things that I whined about in my journal that long ago it's like really my gosh really? I think I was in my 30s yeah I think it was like mid 30s or something and I was digging through my old stuff and I came across a journal that I was writing when I was in my maybe early 20s or late teens and I was reading it and it's the the dribble <laughs> you know <laughs> it really was on and yeah. on and on and I'm like, I did throw away my teenage stuff. <laughs> oh my! And I'm like, oh my 
gosh. And it just goes on and on and on. And, um, and I it also, was cathartic for you at the time. Yes. And, and also at the time, uh, I had, I had a rough teenagers. Um, and, um, and one, and, and at the time I wrote profusely, just, just, it was a very cathartic thing. It's just put everything down mm-hmm. on paper, whatever I was feeling. And, you know, that's how I vented. I didn't actually talk to anyone, but some of the writing actually were in the forms of letters to my friends. <laughs> to tell them what they did? No, no, or no, no. It's just me or venting. just so you could, ah, Yeah, it's just me venting. Good idea. Yes, but and when I when I was looking when I was reading that in my 30s and I think back all the and it was pretty much the same dribble that I would write to my friends and I'm like oh my gosh what wonderful friends I had back then <laughs> that they would actually and it these are not amazing. short letters these are pages oh, no. and pages <laughs> yeah I remember as a teenager writing you know 10 letter pages you know yeah very cramped small writing you know? <laughs> a short letter was three pages but on average yeah, it was yeah. like five to ten <laughs> and like what patience they had yeah but anyway sorry sidetrack no it, it's, it's amazing how we're blessed with really good friends in our in our teenage years you know yeah. we all go our different ways and we don't necessarily see each other anymore but wow if you have the right people in your in your life at the right time I have noticed um I absolutely believe that and I think um even though your home life was um you know a turbulent and and a disaster I think a, is the word you're looking for okay. <laughs> even though your home life was a disaster was a total uh what is that word I can't remember but anyway um train wreck yeah that's <laughs> um that, the inside though the outside nobody knew oh yeah the eyesight outside is pristine yeah nobody would know yeah. I mean I I met you 2010 or something like that no oh, no no I think it was before then I think it was like six or six seven maybe? yeah no six no seven I remember it was 2006 or seven because that's when I was going to a lot of conferences ah uh, back then yeah the I am conference that was yeah. the last one they did I think uh, but that was the first one I attended so was that the last one they did first and last it was the first one I went to and I thought oh this is great I'm gonna go again next year and it they it never did happen. it oh, okay no yeah um yeah and i think um the rhetoric was they wanted to make it into a movement so i guess the movement didn't quite take i don't know i think it is i think um mako uh fujimura who's yeah who started it he has um really gone further in the concept of culture care that as artists we do culture care and he has written quite a few books and um, does a lot of lectures and that's his focus not so much on conferences but on trying to com- create community but you know he is his intellect is way up here and you know I'm a midbrow person <laughs> so when he's you know talking about his you know he teaches what at Princeton or Yale I don't I don't know and uh so his his way of expressing is much more lofty than perhaps mine and his art expresses things perhaps on a deeper level and and so I don't pretend that I travel in his circles you know it's just no 
I'm just kind of a hanger on. I, I view it from afar. I'm just, and I agree with him, culture care, because his point is um, that as Christians and as Christian creatives, that we are tasked with not culture war, which you hear so many, right. uh, you know, and I only know of the evangelical. I really don't know if, if more liturgical communities are, are saying the same things. Um, but there's always this idea of we're in a culture war, we're in a culture war of values. And it's, I love his viewpoint is that no, we are tasked with culture care. We are creatives and we speak life into culture through art, through story, through music, through podcasts, and, um, and that we are tasked with a holy work. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's where he's, he's going with um, the movement. Yeah. I think the 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 sentiment of war I think come may maybe it comes from the the concept of the spiritual war, and that somehow sort of seeped into cultural war as well. Um, well I feel like that's sort of where the origins are. Um, perhaps. Once more, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole, but I think part of it too is the patriarchy that has invaded the church, that um, it's more masculine and worthy to be someone who arms yourself and uh, riots against a system that you deem unjust, that's much more manly than um, living a life of a servant. Mm-hmm. going to a cross mm-hmm. and and living out life that way and i think if i think if the church had maintained what jesus had started which was multicultural intergenerational gender neutral um and by gender neutral i'm not saying that people didn't marry but that both men and women were honored, you know, were apostles, were, uh, you know, women had church, had churches in their house. So they were church leaders, you know, that's, that's very glossed over uh, and even rewritten in some um, translations of the Bible, like Junia is, was, who was an apostle has been renamed Junius because a woman can't be an apostle. So mm. there's this whole patriarchy that embraces, you know, uh, the military aspect. I mean, that's, men, men are aggressive, you know, as, uh, and, and so I think that um, that's a big part of the, the problem of culture war is yeah. that it, it really, resonates to a patriarchal system of control yeah um i i know the word patriarchy is used in a in a social um in the social construct uh conversations i know that it's used in a negative way but i would argue that a true 
patriarchy is not that it's it's the model that true yeah it's the true. model and i'm using it in the social i'm i'm using it in the societal yes. way yeah and you're right you're right i mean there there are good things about good fathers you know yes. church fathers they're a good thing about church mothers too and i would like them oh, yes. to have a voice <laughs> oh yes absolutely because i mean if you think about it we we both submit to to christ it's not yeah yeah you know um yeah the submission is on both parts it's not one or the other there there is a functional hierarchy um but that's not that's not necessarily the power dynamic or or power structure necessarily it's not a power structure um it's but it has become a power structure yes no i absolutely agree um and as with anything uh as with everything uh our sinful nature has corrupted it <laughs> yep <laughs> um i mean yep that's that's kind of like a sort of a textbook answer and and it but it's like, also true it's also true um now that said but you know the conversation shouldn't end there it should it should start by saying uh, and which is part of the forgiveness too i think it kind of works into that argument as well that um yeah, there are all these corrupt systems, dysfunctional homes, dys dysfunctional society. Um, the way to uh, fix that is not to combat it in, in sort of that, you know, the war dynamic, but it is, right. as you said, through, um, what is it you said? The Mako termed culture, culture care, culture exactly. care, culture. right? Through yeah. caring, healing, and counseling, <laughs> and community, community, and community. is a big part of it. Yes, and, uh, but I think community. Yeah. I think the sense of community also has sort of been diluted to the point where community. Oh yeah, yeah. People, oh, yeah. the sense of community is only people who agree with everything I say. Community, and that's yeah. not community. Community is actually embracing even those people who hate you. <laughs> and or hate your ideals. Both, I would say. Well, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. Excuse me. <laughs> it's a hard thing to do. I, I don't have solutions. I don't have answers as to like how to actually go about doing all those things. But... Um, I don't think those answers are easy. Yeah. I don't think they're birthed in strife. I think they're birthed in real community. And um, and I agree, you know, we've got now, and I really don't know how it's happened. We've gotten to be such a superficial community. I don't, I don't know how far you got into the book, but I am amazed at the community that I was in at the time when I uh, first entered into caregiving with mom because people came out of the woodwork in my faith community to help, to help um, in tangible, real ways, in ways that 
they were able, you know, how we started, we were talking about spiritual gifts and, you know, I have the spiritual gift of mercy. I suspect yours is, you know, administration. I, you know, I think you are, I think you have a a really good combination because you could work in, you know, financial industries, but you can also work in creative industries. You've got a really great mix going that um, I'm I'm just watching unfold (laughs) from afar because I do everything from afar. And it's really neat to watch you shine. I, uh, I kind of consider myself master of none. (laughs) yeah that's a lie <laughs> I, I kind of oh uh, actually well one of the things I, I kind of lack is is discipline uh in you know kind of sticking with something uh well you're a generalist yes not a, you know and you know if you are in a in a business or I, I think being a, I'm a generalist I think being a generalist has a lot of strengths you're much more flexible if you're a specialist you go deep Mm. Uh, that's true but then what if what happens when your specialty dries up Mm. whereas if you're a generalist like you are you you can't you're over here doing this but then all of a sudden you can be a utility player over here or you can walk away from all of that travel the world do some interesting things and I loved watching. I'm so glad you're reposting your hundred word oh, um, yeah. stories again, because those are just great. I just I, love I just, watching you travel the world. It's like, this is my girl. She is doing, <laughs> she is doing it. <laughs> um, yeah, that conversation came up uh, actually on my first episode. I was talking to my guest. A yeah, long-time I remember. Friend. She and, kind of uh, she shoved you in that direction again. Good she, for her. she did. She's like, oh yeah, you need to do that again. I'm like, okay, I was thinking about doing that, so maybe I should. <laughs> yeah, she um, was a great guest. She's an interesting woman. She oh, was a great way to start your podcast. She's just a firecracker. She's coming back. Uh, I booked her again because I felt like um, we were really getting at something good, but then mm-hmm. we were, we had been already talking for like four hours. And, <laughs> it was uh, a long podcast. <laughs> it, was, it was really long. Two now, parts. Two part. Well, two only two parts because be, because two parts, two parts because the the platform I'm I'm using kept saying this file is too big, <laughs> so I had to cut it into two parts. Well, so it's part now, of the learning curve. So now I'm keeping my podcast at three hours is sort of like the maximum because beyond that, then it, the file gets too big and I have to cut it into, um, you know. But anyway, yes, uh, yeah. Thank you, thank you uh, for for that. Um, it is something that I enjoy doing, but I feel like it's a story from several years ago and sort of not in step with anything that's going on right now and so part of me is like I don't know why am I doing this because <laughs> you're re-entering the water because I trust that you will start doing hundred word stories about now it'll come yeah yeah you're just kind of getting easing back into it I think so it, but but also part of it is well it's something that I started maybe I should finish finish it you know <laughs> but it's gonna be a while before I finish it at the pace I'm going <laughs> yeah yeah I that's okay that. yeah yeah um so 
going back to where we were yes society yes you were talking about that when you started caring for your mother so let's sort of like jump to that um oh the community community well something else well you uh starting to care for your mother because that's an interesting story too it's it's all also sort of a miracle kind of story how your mother came back into your life yeah yeah yeah, it was um so what do you want you want me to tell the the story or yes if you would yeah so um i had disconnected from my mother as we had heard earlier and one day, my husband always came home from work to have lunch with me. And he just kind of struck up a conversation one day and he said, you know, if I ever get a card or letter from your mother, what do you want me to do with it? Now, he asked this because he had seen her full on. He knew how toxic she was. He was a good son-in-law to her, but he did not like how he, she treated me. And he's a very protective man. And um, he wanted to know, is this, is this permanent? Do you just not want to ever hear from her again? And at that point, the Lord said, pay attention to this. And it's like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, internally, it's like, oh, no. And I said, you know, Mike, if she writes to me, if she sends me something, that means that something's wrong. And I, I need to know about it because she doesn't have anybody. I'm the only person that she has. So he pulls out this card from his coat pocket and throws it in front of me. And it's like, oh, crap. <laughs> I, have to, I have to decide right now. Um, <laughs> I can't ease into this. I know. And uh, your 10-year uh, vacation is over. My 11 year vacation is over. Yes. I did get a bonus year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's over. <laughs> it's over. And so um, I read it, but there's there were two things that kind of stuck out to me. One, it wasn't her handwriting. Um, it was the way she would phrase things, but it wasn't her handwriting. And there was also a little note in there that said, you know, my name is Jane Ann and I'm writing this for your mother. Um, And there were just things in it that weren't making sense to me because she was talking about losing her memory and she was, you know, there was just different things. But one of the things that really shocked me was she said, "Um, I am your mother and I how did she put it? And I did the wrong thing. I'm the one that hung up and I am sorry. And I almost, I, I did not know what to do with that because I had never in my life did I ever hear my mother A, admit that she was wrong or B, apologize for anything. And so the memory thing didn't make sense and the apology thing didn't make sense. And I, and so this, I'm wondering, is this Jane Ann person trying to manipulate something here? Because, you know, what, what's going on? So Mike, Mike is there while I'm reading it. I'm, I read it to him. He said, so what are you going to do? I said, I have to call back, you know, to different people, find out what's going on because no one in, no one in my family, and I can go back three generations 
no one has ever had any kind of dementia. So that's, you know, it's always been cancer and heart disease. And so this was a new thing. Um, so I started calling, I called her pastor and uh, it took a couple of days to get through. But when I finally did, he said, oh, Jane Ann's my wife. And you no, know, your mother did dig dictate that. Um, no one added anything to it. And then he gave me the background of what was going on, how he'd been kind of working with mom for quite some time. He didn't even know she had a daughter. You know, as far as he didn't know she had ever been married, he just, he didn't know anything about her. And then as she started getting confused, more and more of her story started coming out because she wasn't so self-protected. And she um, started telling him about her, her daughter that she hasn't heard from and why she hadn't heard from me and, and things like that. So he, he said something like, I've been trying for six years to get her to apologize. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, but you didn't know that God had given me a, a break. <laughs> So you were a little too soon on the, on the timetable there. <laughs> um, so, so I spoke with him and got the, the details of what was going on. And he told me at that point that she was in the beginning stages of Alzheimer's. So I was thinking, okay, I, you know, I, I can deal with this. Well, one thing that people with any kind of dementia are good at, it's hiding hiding what they can and can't do and pretending that they understand something when they don't, because there's a lot of fear, you know, and mom always operated on fear. So she's got that on steroids. And so he didn't really know the, how far down the line she was. She was actually in mid stages when I finally got involved in her care. And so a, she apologized. And, and so I, called her and um, told her that, you know, I had read her letter and I really appreciated that she asked for forgiveness and that I did forgive her and that I loved her. And she started crying. And um, she said, I, I never thought I would hear that. And I'll be honest, I never thought I would say that. Um, you know, it was, that was kind of beyond me. So, um, so at that point, I made plans to come for a visit and, you know, said that Mike and I would come for a visit and told her when. And then uh, a couple of days later, I got a phone call from either the pastor or his wife and said, she's afraid she's afraid of you. And I was like, what? <laughs> and they said, she's, she said, I'm afraid of Donna. She's so strong. She's so much stronger than I am. And I, this is the woman who always steamrolled over me. And it's like, I, I just, it was not how I thought she pictured me and it's not how I pictured myself. And, um, and to put her at ease, I said, well, why don't you and, and your wife come with us and we'll have lunch together. Uh, we'll, we'll meet at her house and you can drive her to the restaurant so she doesn't have to be alone with me. 
you know, we, we put all of that in place so that she would feel comfortable. And we went to the restaurant and um, it was a good first meeting. She couldn't read the menu. Um, I didn't quite catch on at that point. The menu had a lot of pictures, but um, she no longer really could read well. So that she was uh, pretty far down the path. And after that, I started, first I started going once a month to just check on her, see how things were going. It became really clear she needed a lot more help. She was taking things, you know, like chicken out of the freezer, putting it on the counter, letting it thaw out, and then mummify. Yeah. And, you know, it was not a clean environment. It just, yeah. And she had some feral cats living with her in, oh, wow. in the basement. Yeah. It was, it was really, it was a mess. And so then I started coming every two weeks. Then I was coming every week. And then I was coming twice a week. And, um, you know, it's a two and a half hour drive one way. So this, this is our Detroit home yeah. where you grew up. Okay. Yeah. So she was still there. So it became clear that she didn't, she needed, she needed someone who would be an advocate and advocate and someone who would really look after her. And I really couldn't have her church do that. Um, even though they did help her quite a bit, a little bit too much. Um, I'm trying to clean out her house and they kept taking her shopping. So she'd bring more stuff in. It's like, please stop taking her shopping. She bought things that didn't fit. She bought, and I didn't try them on her. So when I brought her boots to Grand Rapids and tried to put them on, they were, they were like three sizes too small. They were cute, but they didn't fit her. <laughs> so I um, started cleaning out her house, which was a pit, and started talking to her about moving to Grand Rapids to be closer to me. And I found a place that's only a quarter mile away that I thought was just some apartments, but it's actually um, a senior living campus. So there's condos, then there's apartments, then there's um, health care, and then there's, uh, a, you know, end of life care. Yeah. So it's got all of the stages and it's, it's very low key. It's a faith-based run organization. And they cater mostly to retired um, missionaries. So when people have given their life on the mission field and come back, they have no retirement, they have no savings, they have, sometimes their family is, you know, like I know one couple, their family is in Argentina, their children grew up there, married there, that's, that's their home. But they had to come back here because that's, this is their citizenship but they don't, they don't have the support. So a place like Rest Haven has that for missionaries and they, they live at a greatly discounted price because they get donations from different churches and things like that. Now, mom wasn't a missionary, so she didn't get that kind of a discount, but that's okay. I sold off her property and I was able to pay for her care that way. Um, but yeah, it was a ride. It was a ride. And I think part of the reason I was able to get to the place of forgiveness 
is because she owned that she had sinned against me. She owned it. And that was a big relief release to me. And you don't always get that. No, with you people. Don't. Yeah. You don't always get that with people. And so that was a huge grace that God gave me is that she owned her part of it. So that was big. What was there a, a resistance from on your mother's part in relocating? Yes and no. Um, she part of her understood that she needed help. And part of her understood that this really was the only way. But but I tried as much as I could to make her apartment look just like her house. I tried to set it up as much as I could in the same way uh, so that there would be, you know, some sort of familiarity. I had the same uh, furniture. I had the same curtains. I brought, you know, pictures of her parents, you know, and her family to put around her and, and some of her church friends. And I encouraged her friends to come visit her whenever they could. And, and they did, but, you know, it's a two and a half hour drive. And if you, if you work or if you're, if you have a family, you, you can't just make that trip lightly. And so she, you know, I would take her out every day and I would take her grocery shopping and I would, I would take her to the park and I, you know, I, I kept her as active as I could, but in the afternoons, I would leave her in her apartment to kind of maybe take a nap and so that I could get something done. And it got to be overwhelming uh, for me because she quickly became very angry. She, she did realize she needed it, but then she was resentful. She was resentful that I was calling all the shots. She was resentful that her yeah. friends were gone. She was resentful that, you know, people weren't calling her. Well, they weren't calling her because she would hang up the, the phone in the drawer and close the drawer. So it was still off the hook. She just put the uh. receiver in the drawer and because it was, uh, she didn't have a cell phone. Oh Lord, no, not a cell phone. But <laughs> she couldn't even, she couldn't even operate the, um, the TV. It, it got to be the point where I just kept it on a fairly neutral channel, I thought. And just left it on all the time because she couldn't change the channels. She couldn't figure that out. And if it was on a movie channel and something violent came on, uh, it would really upset her. But then I put it on the animal channel channel and found out that they were broadcasting violent things against animals. So I had to, yeah. I had to change that one. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was. It was necessary, and at first she understood that, but she quickly got to anger and uh, quickly got back to the place of pushing those buttons. And I, I was really, it didn't take long to become frazzled. You know, after about six, six or nine months, I was feeling pretty frazzled. And that's when people in my faith community stepped in, my husband stepped in, 
uh, one woman visited mom every Friday night after work. She worked um, in the medical field. So she, she was tired and she would come and she would uh, have make dinner for mom and sit and visit with her and watch a movie together. And she and her husband, you know, had talked about it and they did, they made that sacrifice for me. That's what community would do, will do for you, a real community. Another friend would come and bring her dogs. She um, has therapy dogs and she would bring a dog to come and let mom pet and fawn over the dog. And while she was fawning over the dog, she would talk to Sandy and, and, you know, she would just do that. I didn't even know. And she would come in the afternoon. She didn't tell me she was coming. And really, they just yeah, she would just go and she would, she'd keep mom company. And then you know maybe a week later she'd send me a photo of you know how she took a picture of mom and the dog. And I put when were you there? <laughs> oh, I go over. It's like you know people would just do that. And Mike saw how frazzled I was, and so he decided to take over the evening shift. So instead of me going back in the evening to fix dinner and take care of her, he would do that after work. You know, he was working all day. He would do that so that I would have a bit of a break. So yeah, I had some very great people in my life at that time. If that happened to me right now, um, cause I'll, you know, people have scattered, you know, um, Mickey has retired and she's with her children down in Texas. And Sandy is, you know, in her eighties now, and she has, you know, other things to do. And I'm no longer part of that church. It kind of imploded. Um, and I'm part of a, a church that's trying to build something, you know, in a more, we're trying to build an intergenerational, interracial, real community in a more depressed neighborhood. And I'm part of the the I'm part of the community. I'm a I'm a giver in that community. I'm not a receiver at this point. Uh, that will have to be built, and I, you know it takes years to build something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. So I just pray nothing happens to me in the meantime. <laughs> um, how long were you caring for your mother after she moved? Seven years. Well, that's a while. That's a long time. Yeah. 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 I remember starting the journey. I thought to myself and I prayed. I said, you know, I think I can take it three years, Lord. Three years. Okay. Yeah. I can do it for three years. Like, no, I think. I don't uh, think I could even do it for six months without a lot of help. And and I um, think if we knew how long certain journeys are, (laughs) we would well, yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing. I was sitting on her bed. She had died um, <laughs> in true fashion. I had, I had sat by her bedside for like three weeks because she was failing. And I had, you know, um, she was nonverbal at that time, but I would sing to her or I would read to her or I would talk to her just to let her know she wasn't alone. And um, also, well, I won't tell you about the death process, Americans don't know a lot about the death process and it's, it's not, it's not this lovely death scene in a movie where you just close your eyes. There's a, 
there's a lot to the death process. And I was there walking her through that. And when, and I was sitting in this chair next to her and my back was killing me. I just, I, I'd been with her and I asked the nurse to come in and, and look at the signs. Cause there are certain signs that present themselves uh, shortly before death. And I said, I, I think she'll, she's okay, but I would like your opinion. Uh, can I go home and take a shower and just lay down for a moment and, and let my back relax? And, and she checked her and she said, yeah, yeah, I think you can. So I leaned over and I said, mom, I'm going home. I'll be back in about an hour and I'll see you soon. And it was when I left that she died. So, um, True to herself, she just didn't want me around. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I tell it. I think you know, I I didn't want her to be alone, but she wanted to be by herself. Yeah, in the process, and that's yeah. that's okay. But I was sitting on her bed. Um, they had taken the body away, and I was sitting there, and I looked at the date, and it was almost seven years to the date that I got the card, and I was. I was thinking seven years. If you had told me at the beginning of that journey, it was seven years, I would have killed myself. I would have just <laughs> slit my throat. Maybe not just, that drastic, but. I would have done some serious self-harm so I could get out of it. I really would have. Yeah. I mean, that's how, that's how I felt. I, I don't know that I really would, but that's how I felt. <laughs> I would have wanted to die. But. At the end of it, as I was looking back, I was thinking, wow, that went by fast. And so it, it is, it's a difference of perspective. When, you, when you're going into something, it's a blessing that you don't know. It really is a blessing. Because when you go into something knowing what it's going to take of you, it can actually be harder. It must be hot in New York. <laughs> Uh, no, it's, I don't know. What's the temperature? Let me check. Because um, you said you've got the window open. And... Oh, no, that's because we usually like it cool. In oh. Here. And also, um, the thing about New York apartments is they give too much heat. I don't know why. Oh. Okay. And um, my building isn't very tall. It's only six floors, but I'm on the top floor. So we get the sun oh, the from heat. the roof yeah. and the heat rising. So, yeah. So even all winter, we have to like leave uh, the window cracked open. Otherwise, it's like a sauna in here, a dry sauna. Yeah, I can tell you've got short yeah. sleeves and it's like, oh, you're sweating. And I'm, I've got a turtleneck on and I've got the heat on. <laughs> um, I'm not sweating. It's, it's tears. <laughs> really? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, 54 degrees. So it's not, it's not hot. Oh, that's not bad. No, it's a nice, nice, cool uh, spring weather. Um, why are you why are you brought to tears oh my gosh what what you're saying everything <laughs> this is um it's a very emotional journey um, you have a very compassionate heart i don't know i i'm i'm one of those who cry at movies i'm such a sap you know oh yeah well movies a, are a safe place to cry i cry at movies all the time yeah you know that it's a it's a safety you know that's a safety place um <laughs> I don't know how to hold back tears. If it comes, it comes. 
That is a great gift. I learned to not cry um, because of the power that it gave to people who were trying to make me cry. So I learned in my teens not to cry. Um, and I, I carried that around for about a decade, just not crying. And that's not a healthy place to be. That is not healthy. And uh, I've, I was in, um, I was in Stephen's ministry training and part of the training of that is dealing with your own inner stuff. And one evening we had to go back to past trauma and, and talk about it. And I've talked about traumas a lot, you know, through counseling and, and people asking my story and I can, I can go right through it. It's like, yeah, this, 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 this. And people are like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, so I picked a different trauma, something that wasn't family origin. It was something else. And I went through it. I had already gone through my partner's trauma. I had listened to her and, and walked her through it and everybody had left. And I said, you know, we don't have to go through this if you don't want to. She goes, no, 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 you, you, you were there with me. I, I'm going to do, I'm going to stay here as long as it takes. So I start going through the da, 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 and something broke, just broke inside. And I let out this scream and keeled over. God bless Gail. She caught me. <laughs> She's smaller than me. She caught me and held on for dear life. And I sobbed for probably a half an hour so much that I had black eyes. I, um, I just broke blood vessels and I looked like a raccoon for, oh my gosh. <laughs> for about a week. So you cry girl, because you don't want to have an episode like that. <laughs> it was good. It was healing. I'm really, really glad, but it, I, I much rather be open and vulnerable. I think that's a better way to live. Sometimes because of your life circumstances, you can't, but when you get out of those, then, then you need to heal and get to the point where you can. Yeah. Um, seven years. <laughs> seven years. Um, seven years. And my plan. <laughs> yes. This is my plan. Because I had been a professional artist for 20 years before I started taking care of her. And, you know, 9-11 hit and the art market changed. I still sold well, but things just didn't make sense anymore. And um, I just kind of lost interest in what had been my passion. And when mom came into the picture, it was like, well, I can just lay down my art career and I'll pick it up when I'm done. I'll just take a hiatus. Well, then I, I don't know what I was thinking, but you know, after such an intense time, it took about a year to just 
find my bearings again. Yeah. Um, just try to figure out what, what to do. And do I get a job? Do what, what do I do? And at that point, my in-laws started needing uh, assistance. They were not in the same situation as my mother. Uh, they had each other, but dad was starting to go into dementia and mom had, um, mom Kemper had a heart failure. And so she was frail. She was walking with a walker. She really couldn't keep dad under control. They had quite a bit of property. You know, they had like 10 acres and they had quite a large house and they just really needed help. And so once again, I was in the car <laughs> driving across state and we did that. Um, I don't know, for a few years, we were, we were just driving yeah. back and forth. So I went from one caregiving situation to another, but it wasn't as intense. It, it wasn't the same. So different things were needed from me. And, and so I didn't pick up my art career because I was busy being, you know, from a distance for a while, but being another caregiver. And um, it just, you know, mom got weaker and weaker. She did not, mom Kemper did not want to move. She just wanted to figure a way to make it work. And it just, and she, she did as, as best she could. She made a way to make it work. And we, su we supported her as much as we could, but it got to a point where it just wasn't possible anymore. And so once again, we moved some parents to Grand Rapids into a different facility because dad would have never done well with a bunch of missionaries. <laughs> that would not have flown well at all. Are, are they not? The missionaries. Oh, uh, they, how did how did your mother deal with the missionaries? <laughs> oh, she did actually. She she did okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, they are by definition a kind and caring lot. And so <laughs> they they just figured out ways, you know, they understood that she was just in need. And God bless them, they they just loved her. <laughs> the staff. I got to tell you, there were times I was, I would get kind of angry. I would go in and the staff called her Jojo, which had she been not in dementia, she would have hated because one of the reasons that she didn't want to go by Josephine is she didn't want anybody calling her Josie or Jojo, but she, um, her name was Josephine Mabel Williams. And for the first 40 years of her life, she went by Mabel. But she hated that name. So when she was 40, she went to, to Joe. So when people at Rest Haven were introduced to her, they started calling her Jojo. And she just thought that was great. And that's why I was like, really? <laughs> okay. So they loved Jojo. And they would tell me, oh, she's so sweet. We love your mother. She's so nice. No, she's not. <laughs> You get her out of here and she's just so mean. <laughs> you didn't know her during her mean days. <laughs> yeah. Well, the head nurse there had a mother who was very similar. Mm. And she she called me into her office one day and she goes, you know, I know that it's 
not the same for you as it is for the other nurses. And I just want you to know, I know what it's like. And it's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Just wow. thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, that's that that was really sweet. That was really kind of her to say. Yeah. It was. Well, she lived it. You know, she knew what it was like. So yeah. everybody loves your mom. She's so sweet. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. To you, maybe. Get her in the car. Let me mic her in the car. And then, <laughs> then you'll see what she's like. Yeah. Oh. Uh, wow. So it's like 10 years of caregiving. Uh, first seven. More. It was a little more. more. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, mom Kemper died in 2016. And that just broke my heart. Mm. And, um, and at that point, dad no longer had her watching over him and had to be moved into uh, a care unit. So we found another place for him to stay. And we were there every day, but Mike was there more. You know, he just, that was his dad and he wanted to take care of his dad. And so I was more of a peripheral on that one. But, um, and he died in 2019. So we were caregiving from two, 2003 to 2019. Wow. What is In that? one form or another. 16 years. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. It was. It That's was. a long time. Yeah. So, so I'm moving back into art, but it's very, very different. It's, mm -hmm. um, I used to do representational art, you know, portraiture and landscapes. And that just, it just doesn't express anything for me anymore. Mm. So now I'm trying to move into more abstraction. I'm trying to put prayer into painting. So it's like <laughs> painting in tongues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know how to do that. So it's, I'm just kind of trying to figure it out, trying to find a, a new painting language. So were you always a representational artist? Yeah, that's how I was uh, trained. I was, mm -hmm. I was trained by a, a man who was a professional. I, I went through college and, you know, that was more learning how to, draw, you know, what drawing is and learning to work from a model and learning how to see. Um, and so once you're kind of cut loose, you, you have to figure out a way to make it work. And I felt that my training in college was not ideal. So I was thinking about going on for a master's degree, but I also felt it would be more of the same of, oh, just do what you want. You know, the seventies, do what you want, do what you feel, do what you think is cool. Um, and I was, I was more interested in in learning a skill level. I was, even though I'm a generalist, I wanted to learn, you know, how to specialize in, in the, in the craft of it. So I, I spent some time looking around and I found a man who was a professional portrait artist. And rather than going for a graduate degree, I apprenticed with him for about four years. So I don't have, I don't have a piece of paper that says that, you know, I've got this training, but I've got mad skills. <laughs> I have mad skills <laughs> that I'm not using anymore because I want to go in a different direction. <laughs> um, you actually have quite a repertoire, I think. Uh, you're an artist. You also, 
you've been doing calligraphy. I think you're teaching oh, yeah. yourself calligraphy, and you're a master pun. <laughs> or I don't know what is that. What's a noun form of pun? Uh, like somebody who does puns. Punster. A punster. You're a, I'm ma- a punster. You're a master punster. Uh, I don't know. I would I, never. I would never get into a punning competition because I am not that fast. Yeah, I can't do it on the fly. I just kind of ponder things like, oh, that would be good. Yeah, I can't even do that. I mean, the 100 word stories, I'm trying to make it punchy as I could, but like, no, it's just not coming out that way. I'm just like straight telling the story. Um, I do try to like, uh, at least try to make a point, you know, of either observation or, or something, you know, or maybe an internal thought process or something. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I'm not, I can't write humor. I can't, I have one funny song and it was, I wasn't even trying to be funny. Um, <laughs> you know, I find that I do that a lot with puns. It's like, oh, that's a good pun. Yeah, yeah I meant that. <laughs> <laughs> Fall into them a lot of times. So. Don't give me too much credit. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah, but but you recognize it. No, that's oh. that's still something. <laughs> no, somebody else recognizes it. Oh, that's really a good pun. Oh, yeah, I meant to do that. <laughs> no, I, I, I still love, I, you know, I don't, I haven't really seen much, uh, you know. I'm off, I'm off of Facebook. I oh. decided to uh, go off for Lent. Okay. I gave up. Coffee, Facebook, and um, online games. Okay. those up because they were all interfering with um, a deeper life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, especially, you know, Facebook got became so toxic, even as people went off to go to a more, uh, to a different platform where they felt they could, you know, be themselves. There were still people who uh, were being very, very toxic on on both sides of the aisles, no, nobody has cornered that market. And I just thought, you know, you snooze people for 30 years, 30, 30 years, 30 days, hoping that they'll work it out of their system and they come back and it's still the same. And it's, you know what? I don't have to put myself in the situation. I can just remove myself for a while. Yeah. I do plan to come back after Easter and I will maintain my ministry of mirth that's what i consider the puns is a ministry of mirth to try to get people out of their you know sinkholes and come back up and say oh yeah there there is there are things to smile about there are things to hope yeah um i i don't know what my podcast is gonna i'm still sort of in the process of figuring out what this is but Mm -hmm. i'm hoping it will turn into something but every day um, I kind of question myself, why am I doing this? <laughs> why am I doing this? And how long am I going to do it for? I, I, I figured with everything I do, I give myself a year, uh, four seasons, you know, That's, to, that seems really reasonable, right? That's see, a lot better than I do. I peter out faster than that. Um, like that's that's how I took any like job, you know. Anytime I went for a new job, I would commit to a year, minimum a year, uh, and then after that year, I would decide whether or not to stay or go. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but apparently, I I hate changing jobs. So my my last corporate job, I was there, 
a little a few months shy of 10 years uh no you gave him a lot i gave him a lot and and the and the one before that i was there a little under 11 years so (laughs) yes kind of like me thinking that i'm going to you know go across the country you know a few years here a few years there a few years there you get stuck and it's not necessarily a bad thing you know it's you make good connections and yeah, I do want to I do want to sort of circle back to the story with your mother a bit, because um, one of the things that you said was um, that, you know, uh, like maybe seven months in or something like that, that she kind of went reverted back to her old ways and started getting becoming very angry and resentful. Yeah, I don't think it even took seven months. It took seven months for me to burn out. But I think okay. I, I would say six weeks and she was into being you know she was grieving and she was grieving the only way she knew how which was to lash out at me and um you know she was grieving the loss of her church family she was grieving the loss of her house she was grieving the loss of her feral cats because she could no longer you know have her kitties i tried i really tried to figure out a way to bring them over but that's where my miracle happened. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that because that's really weird. <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, if you want to talk about it, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's fine by me, but it, it does make people uncomfortable. So um, that's okay. I don't mind making people. Okay. I think I think my crying on air makes people uncomfortable. So it? it's yeah. I I think your tears are like prayers, and I I love the picture where God. Um, captures each of our tears in a bottle. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful thing. So don't be a f- cry, 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 cry. <laughs> I'm good with it. Yeah. And let other people figure out how to be good with it. Exactly. It, it's not, it's not my problem. It's theirs. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Good for you. So with, you know, one of the things mom was, was grieving was the loss of her cats and her cats were feral. They only let her get near them and no one else could. And I was trying, trying to figure out a way to maybe trap them, bring them to my house, get them acclimated so that I could let her have a cat. Um, but she was at the point where she couldn't remember what the plan was. And so I stopped a block away from her house and I said, okay, you're going to get your cat. You're going to put it in the carrier. And I'm going to take it to, to my house. So I was only a block away. And I'm not talking about a new New York block. I'm talking about a suburb, suburb block. So it, I was less than 30 seconds away. I pull into the yard. She's holding the cat. She didn't, she couldn't remember to put it in the carrier. The cat saw me and started clawing at her, just ripping her her front and I grabbed it to to protect mom and it bit me for all it was worth and I got it down on the ground and I took mom in and got her taken care of cleaned up and and taken care of and it was clear right away that I was in trouble because my hand started turning red and inflamed and it was it was swelling a lot it was like three times the size that of normal now, mom did not 
noticed that she wasn't cognizant that that was happening. And I was, I had planned that day to take her out. But what I did, I started cleaning the kitchen and I was soaking my hand in hot water, hot soapy water, trying to um, get the swelling down. And it was, it was getting worse. And so I cleaned up the kitchen and I kept the conversation really, really light and um, said, well, it's time for me to go, mom. I'm going to go now. And I drove myself to the hospital and um, they wanted to keep me overnight. And it's like, I don't want to be here. I want to go home. <laughs> I want to be with my husband. You know, I, I just don't want, don't make me stay here. And they soaked it and they put Benadine on it and they gave me a antibiotic drip. And, um, you know, they, they called my primary care physician to let her know what was going on so that she would release me to go. And then if anything happened, I would go to the hospital here. So after I was there several hours and finally they let me go. And to do that, I had to prop my hand up and drive drive across. So I was like the queen mom <laughs> for two and a half hours. I was driving one-handed, keeping my, my arm elevated. And I had wanted to go to this um, conference that was starting that weekend. And it was a conference on prayer. And I had to um, go to the doctor. They looked at it and they, they did a circle and they said if that red goes beyond that line you get to the hospital right away so it would go up to that line I would pray like crazy and then it would go back <laughs> it just kept going back and forth and back and forth but it, I couldn't use my hand for writing and when I'm at a conference I don't know if you remember but I take copious notes that's how I remember things is I just take a lot of notes and I couldn't even hold a pen so I it it was swollen but I kept praying <laughs> I kept praying and it and the red kept going back. So I went to this conference and I'm sitting next to a woman who's saying, I don't know why I'm here. I don't believe in this stuff. Um, you know, and I said, just you know, give it a chance, see what happens. And I had asked the prayer team that once they were done praying for the conference, would they come get me and pray for my hand? And, you know, I, I prayed it. I asked for prayer and I really don't know what I thought was going to happen. I really don't. I just, you know, just, just pray for me so that, that I can make it through the conference basically was what I was thinking. So uh, a couple came to get me and I went into another room. I explained what happened and the husband of the couple had me hold this fat marker. Cause that's about all I could hold. They laid, they laid hands on me and they just asked for healing. That's all they did. It was, I don't think it lasted more than three to five minutes. And I said, thank you. And I went back to the conference, sat next to the lady and she said, so did it do anything? And I held up my hand and the, it looked like a deflated pink balloon. It, <laughs> It was normal size again. It wasn't like it was, you know, like this, but it was pink and, and kind of hanging there. <laughs> like and I said, well, you be the judge because I can use my hand now. Yeah. And, she, and did you ever watch Friends? Yeah. No, no, Seinfeld. Did you ever watch Seinfeld? 
Seinfeld. Yeah. Do you remember when Elaine would go get out and she would push people and they would. Yeah. Yeah. This woman goes, get out. And she pushed me and launched me like over five chairs. She was just like, couldn't believe what happened. And I was like, well, I guess I was there for her, but it was that kind of changed my paradigm and it changed my mindset. Faith prior to that was you, you accept the teachings of, of Christ is true. You make a decision to follow those teachings and and you try to live your life according to those teachings and, and you read scripture and you pray, uh, you know, and, and you go into a Christian community of some sort. And um, so that was my faith walk. And the idea that I would get immediate healing through prayer while I would give you mental assent to that. Well, yeah, that's possible. You know, Jesus raised people from the dead. But the idea that he would do it for me personally and that I would see it um, was true in theory, but I hadn't experienced it. Right. And this was this was a paradigm shift for me. So, yeah, that whole taking care of mom. But I think it all started with the choice to forgive. Yes. Because I think forgiveness is like the coin of the realm in God's kingdom. You it's not that God withholds things from you but if you choose to live in unforgiveness it's like you put a block and how he can flow in your life it's not that he won't continue to flow but maybe not quite the same way and i'm not saying that people aren't healed if they don't forgive but i think that forgiveness opened me up to a whole new paradigm Mm. so that it's yeah. The yeah. Christian life is really strange. <laughs> trying to explain it to people is really hard. It is really hard. And and I think it, that's why that's why we start with um just the core gospel. Yeah. We're yeah. all sinners. Jesus died for your sin. And because you need all the help forgiven. you can get. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's really what a, you need help. You really need help. If you think you can do this on your own, you're wrong. And Jesus came because you yeah. need help. <laughs> that that's the that's a gist of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, earlier, I think you used the term coin. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you uh, how intentionally you meant it, but just as you were saying that, I'm like, yes, forgiveness is. Yeah is the is the only currency yeah that's another way to put it. it's the currency of heaven it is and um and we live as kingdom people we live in a different kingdom um and so the currency there isn't the almighty dollar it's it's forgiveness it's not works or it's it's not anything it's it's forgiveness it's Um, forgiveness and, and you can't fake forgiveness and you can't do that as a work. It has, that's a heart yes. issue. That is, that is work <laughs> and it's a process. And sometimes um, there is a, an artist, uh, Scott McElroy in Indianapolis, and he has written some books on uh, kingdom artists and 
one of the things that he really encourages people to do is to keep a prayer journal and be really raw and honest in it. And when you get, and how he does it is he bases his on the Lord's prayer. So when you get to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, he encourages people to be, to just really let it all out. And I find that's true when I'm praying. A lot of people are very uncomfortable with how I pray because I'm, I just lay it out there. I, I don't mince words. Sometimes the words I use are considered vulgar, but it's, it expresses my heart. It expresses the situation. And God is much bigger than yes. those little conventions. Yes. And, um, and so he's talking about, Scott is talking about when you're putting down how people have betrayed you and how people have sinned against you and how it makes you feel, you know, you're doing that with God and you may not be able to get to a point of forgiveness in that session. You may not be able to be in a place where you're willing to be willing to forgive in that session. But if you get to a point where you're willing to be willing to be willing to forgive, God smiles on that because you're working the mess out with God. You, you know, he knows we're not perfect. He knows that things hurt deeply and he knows that we have to process things and to pretend that things are okay serves no one and serves nothing. And so work it out, work it out as raw and as messy and as vulnerable as you can and try to get a, to a point where you're willing to be willing to be willing because mm. it's a process and eventually you'll get there. It yeah. might take years. It might take years. Um, yeah. And that, that was the, that was the thing that, um, and you kind of led right into that without even me asking the question. <laughs> I'm just so good that way. <laughs> <laughs> that um, that forgiveness, as much as it is an as is action, um, that it is also a process. So, uh, with you and your mother, even though when you did reconcile, you have forgiven her, that as she sort of regressed back into her old ways, mm-hmm. uh, and then that also triggers certain responses from you that that uh, that. You know, it's not, it's not a done deal. It started. It's a choice. It's a choice. And it's a daily choice and you have to choose. Uh, And sometimes it takes a while to get to that point to choose, but you choose every day to walk in forgiveness. And here's, here's one of the things that, um, because as I said, I'm all about counseling and it got, I don't know, three years in, I just, started seeing myself going into a downward spiral of depression because I no longer had my career. I no really, I no longer had my church community. I no longer had my friends because when you can't go out and do things because you're taking care of, you know, they, they've got a life and they've got things to do. So I was feeling more and more isolated. I was feeling more and more resentful and I was going into, um, depression. So I went back into counseling for a while just to kind of keep my sanity and to have a sounding board. And one of the things that um, she reminded me of, and I think this 
applies to to forgiveness as well because I was saying my mother drove me crazy I I don't love her I wish she would just drop over dead plop and, and it's like I mean I you know I, I was just telling it the way it was and I and I said um there's there's just no love in me I, I have no love and she said love isn't a feeling it's an action and I say the same thing about forgiveness forgiveness isn't a feeling it's an action uh it's what you step into uh how you react what you choose to hang on to, what you choose to let go. And uh, it's going to be a challenge all the time. It's not like a done deal. Like you said, it's not one and done. <laughs> it's like, nope, nope. Sometimes nope. it's every five minutes. <laughs> yeah, uh, every five minutes. Um, yeah. And uh, and those things that you were saying to your, your counselor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Homicidal, suicidal. <laughs> I got so many letters. Uh, Double from homicide, people. suicide. <laughs> Part of the reason I didn't have children is I was afraid that they would end up like my mother and I would kill them before they were five. What? And no. Then, <laughs> oh, you don't know. Okay. <laughs> so I, and so I thought, I do not want to, I don't want to be in prison. So I just didn't have children because I just didn't want to be that type of person, too. I mean, children. That's the most important thing you can do. And to destroy someone's life, I just did not want to go down that path. And so, yeah. But, so, um, so, so, I mean, uh, you could tell me if this is maybe you don't want to go down there. Uh, so it was a choice for you, uh, for Mike, to not have children? Yes. Well, maybe. Turns okay. out, turns out I'm, I'm, most probably infertile, uh, but it was one of those things where it wasn't really an issue to me. Okay. So, so we also made the choice not to. Okay. So, so right. One right. way or the other, it probably wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so. uh, because a lot of infertile um, couples, they, they either, if, if they can't have children, they either uh, opt to like adopt or, or, or surrogate. In vitro, yeah. Uh, in, in, yeah. In vitro or surrogacy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I chose to be the neighborhood story lady. Yes. And so, and so we need those. I, I have, because um, that's great. You, I have a, I used to have a really good children's library. Kids would come, we'd sit on the stoop. I would, I would let them choose what uh, book they would read. I'd have cookies and lemonade. We would read the books and act out the books and then they would go home. So it's like, you know, I could, I could have kids. We'd have fun. They'd go. <laughs> work just fine. Uh, As adults, perfect. they've come back to visit. It's just really sweet. So I, I get a chance to, you know, speak into people's lives every once in a while, but yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, so it's not like you don't like children. Uh, I think in my case, it's, oh, it's I love kids, same. but they're yeah. very, very important. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. Too important to have an amateur as a parent. Uh, I'm sorry. What parent isn't an amateur when they first become parents? <laughs> Well, believe me, some some people should not have children. That's just the way it is. Um, so we have a few more minutes. Uh, I just want to kind of go into the book a little bit. So at what point did you decide uh, that um, this, you know, that you wanted to capture this story on, on paper? 
I journaled all through, well, I journaled and I journaled all through the process. And I, a lot of that I pulled from the journal and pulled, which, you know, activated my memories. And, and so I don't know, as people would hear my, my story, my mother's and my story, you know, at Rest Haven or at other places or at her church, um, they would, I kept hearing over and over again, you should write a story, you should write a book, you should write a book. I was like, yeah, right, no. Um, and I, when, when it was all done, when the whole thing was done, I just felt in prayer that the Lord really did want me to write a book. And I did not, it took me two years to write it because it pulled up all of those memories. It's like I relived it all, all over again. And um, which is another reason I didn't go back into art because I was reliving everything. Um, so I, I did, did the manuscript. Um, I had a couple of publishers read it. They, they liked the writing, but they felt that um, Christian memoir is not a, is, is not something that um, it's not sellable. sells, you know, yeah. there was a time, there was a time, I think in the, I don't know, there was a time when it was really popular to, to read um, memoirs and it's not so much now. And so I was like, oh, that's fine. You know, I, I did the process. I worked through it. Um, and look, I just felt like I wasn't off the hook. So I went to um, someone that I knew who was an agent, who had been an agent. And I said, I'm not looking for an agent. I'm looking for advice. You know, here's the manuscript. Here's the story. It's got, it's got good feedback um, as far as the writing goes. What do you think? And my hope was that she would say, uh, no, you really can't do this. And she said, I know the person to hook you up with. And she, she hooked me up with this publisher. So it's, it's published <laughs> whether I wanted yeah. to or not. So. Yeah, no, I, well, I'm glad you did because, um, I mean, I, uh, over those, over those years, um, I have, you know, we, we've been Facebook friends since what, 2006 or seven, whenever or we went to it that. was, yeah. yeah. Um, that, um, yeah. And so I, I, I knew peripherally, you know, some of the things that you yeah. were going through. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I sort of experienced some of that with you. Um, yeah, I would flame on Facebook every once in a while. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Hey, that isn't that what, it, what Facebook is for? Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and then you sprinkle it with puns, you know, yeah. so so it's, it's a good balance there. <laughs> um. So I think um, I think it's a it's a worthwhile and also very important um, message story to tell. You know that uh, a story of forgiveness because I, I think is there's just not enough of it, enough of that kind of conversation happening. Um, yeah. You know, and I yeah. think because I did I was very vulnerable in that book and I did um, write you know a very raw story. Um, I wrote about things that happened to me in my childhood. I wrote about um, 
you know, how I really felt like I wanted to just drop over dead. I, you know, and those, those kinds of things, I got so many letters and emails from people who just appreciated somebody saying that because caregiving, whether it's a husband or a, or a parent or, you know, caregiving for somebody with dementia is hard. It's really, really hard. And, um, when people say things about, oh, just rise above it. Oh, just let it go. It's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you don't understand how it feels to be constantly attacked. You don't know what it feels to have someone who is so vulnerable that you are caring for, that you want to kill, that your emotions are at the point where you want to grab them by their throat and kill them. You don't know that feeling and that's good. I'm glad you don't know that feeling. But if you've had that feeling and have to talk yourself down, the last thing you need is somebody being very Pollyanny, Pollyanny-ish and, and saying, oh, it'll all work out. And oh, it's going to be fine. And, oh, you know, she's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't no. need that that yeah. is not help and if you if you yeah. listener if you are out there and you know somebody going through this and you want to say that shut up <laughs> just shut up the biggest thing you can do for a person who's in crisis show up sit next to them shut up if you can't think of a kind or or good word to say, if all you can think of is a cliche or, you know, Jesus is the answer. Yes, he is, but not right now. Okay. <laughs> if you can't think of something constructive to do to help, your presence is enough. Your presence is enough. Yeah. Take your friend to a movie, take them out for lunch, let them talk, let them spew hateful things. Don't try to fix it. Just shut up. If they can go away with one thing, shut up. <laughs> and I think that is the perfect note to end this podcast. I am serious. <laughs> well, I'm so glad I can help. <laughs> uh, I think that's, um, you know, I think that's, that's sage advice for any situation you know if you don't yeah. know if you don't know what to do or don't know what to whatever or if you have something you think you have something wise to say no no just no, shut up, no. Shut, up. <laughs> shut, shut period up, up. period <laughs> <laughs> um well i want to thank you so much uh donna uh for coming on this podcast and sharing your story and um and i think this may be the episode where i cry the most i thought it was the last one but <laughs> I'm, you know, i missed the last one but i'm gonna go back and watch it <laughs> i actually had to edit out portions of it i don't like editing but i had to edit out portions of it because they were these really long 
pregnant pauses where it was just it was painful for me to sit through and it was, and while I'm watching me and I'm like I can't I can't um I, I can't wish this on on my worst enemy <laughs> it, was, it was that painful so I had to edit out certain segments but here um I was just silently crying while you were talking so I think it was it's much uh, more you know you could stomach it much better I think <laughs> Um, well, I think, I think too, if you've read the book, you'll cry a lot more. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. Uh, I've had people get really mad at me because, you know, they bought it because they're my friend and they, you didn't tell me, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know. Well, I, I go around thinking that people know my story. You know, I've told it enough times that I don't even think about it anymore. And, yeah. um, so when people see you know, like when I was born, how mom said, take it away. Yeah, um, that was, you know, you know, I'm used to it. <laughs> I've heard it many times. And so it's, it, but for other people, it's, it's shocking. And so, um, yeah, but also, I don't know that, well, I guess people can feel whatever they feel, but you know, yeah. it, it's difficult though to, uh, divulge every single detail of your life to even your closest friends you know it's like how much yeah. of one's life can you share yeah you know? especially it when it's in over the past. time exactly yeah. it all unfolds over time and if if your friendship hasn't you know gone in that direction yeah you share other things and it you know but yeah well you know for all those it's, friends they could say hey watch this podcast <laughs> No, they all know now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, again, thank you so much, Donna, for your time and your uh, sharing and, and opening up your, your life and your story this way. I hope uh, it, you know, touches and helps someone out there listening. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening and uh, bearing with me <laughs> through all this. Uh, this is Beer Cake with JJ Co. You could find... Uh, this podcast streaming on most streaming platforms now, um, Apple, Spotify, Google, what have you. And you can watch the video on YouTube, Your Cake with JJ Co. And you can also follow me on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm not on anything else, Twitch or, you know, all the other stuff. That's just way too much to maintain. So anyway. I don't do Twitter. I do Instagram and Facebook. That's enough. Um, I actually don't actually do Twitter. What I do is I post it on Instagram and then have Instagram posted out to (laughs) Facebook and Twitter. For you. That's one less thing you have to do. One less thing. Yeah. So I just kind of like cross, cross post, um, but yeah anyway thank you so much uh for listening it's so good to see you JJ. Uh, it's great to and see have you. an interaction with you, you i know, know. uh well you're welcome to come on anytime we didn't get to talk about your art at all so i think maybe next time uh we actually talk about your new artistic adventures um we'll, we'll see like, where they go yeah no i'm excited i'm i'm looking forward to following you know your progress um Okay. Well, thank you again. Thanks, everyone. Take care. You could stay on a little bit. I will. Yeah. I'll just wave at everybody. Yeah.